Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. We know that running a small firm is tough and ending the year with a profit may be even tougher. That's why we created Profit for Small Firm Architects. It's a three-module digital course and it's available to you for free right now by visiting entrearchitect.com slash free course. Entree Architect Podcast, episode 134. Welcome back to the Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm whether you're in the process of launching a startup or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. This is the episode that so many of you and I have been waiting for. This week at Entree Architect Podcast, I invited Declan Keefe of Place Taylor back to the show. He was just here to share his knowledge, and he has shared tons of his knowledge here. I can't wait to share this with you about how to get started as an architect developer. This episode of the Entree Architect Podcast is sponsored by FreshBooks, the easiest way to send invoices manage expenses, and track your time. Learn more at freshbooks.com slash architect. Declan Keefe, welcome back to the Entree yeah. Architect podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. 
Yeah, it's awesome to have you here. The first episode, not too long ago, episode 130, this is 133, so just three episodes ago you were here. Um, you shared an amazing origin story. Every every guest we have on, we ask for their origin story. And you have a great one uh, talking about as, as, a, as a student, you were hired uh, by this firm. And uh, in less than three years later, you owned it. <laughs> so anybody who wants to hear that story, and it's definitely worth the listen and so many more uh, tidbits of value in that estimate, uh, in that, uh, episode, episode 130, go back and listen to that. Um, the one thing that you did mention during that episode is, uh, you talked about your, your business model. You talked about how place Taylor, your firm, uh, based in, in Boston provides not only architectural services and construction services as a design build firm, but you also do architect as developer. And when, People hear that, they want to know more. <laughs> and every time I have a guest on that talks about that, I know that's an in-depth subject. And so uh, I tease them and say, I want to, I'll have them come back. And so I'm, I'm fulfilling the promise. I'm fulfilling the promise and having you back to talk about Architect as Developer. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. So let's, let, before we get into that, remind us about your firm. Talk about like the full business model. Uh, and all the things you do, and then we'll get more into architect as developer. So we are an architecture firm that provides uh, architectural services, construction services, and does real estate development. So that's the perspective that we we come at it from. Um, we look at architecture sort of as the the genesis for uh, all of the ideas, but it's not necessarily the genesis of where the work comes from. Um, and that's largely where the real estate development piece came in. We were running the business for a number of years, uh, as we talked about in the last episodes, um, just as a design-build company. And that was working well. We were working for clients. And we reached a point where uh, we sort of decided as a team that we've got to get serious about running a business here. And... Uh, in that decision, there was how are we really going to take control over uh, the revenue and the profit side of this business when there's so much unknown about the the market itself, especially in such a volatile industry such as uh, the construction and architecture world. Uh, keep in mind that we started the business in 2008, so um, not necessarily the greatest economics times for no, that's not, for the, not a good year. Right. And so, uh, truth be told, we, we didn't make money for really a, a number of years, which is fairly common. And in fact, we lost uh, quite a bit of money. And so, uh, the whole truth of it is I took over a business that was in a significant amount of debt. Um, and I, I knew it was in debt. I didn't quite know just how bad it really was until I, I really was in there digging through the numbers and um, decided that there was there was a way way out potentially. And it was going to be a risky way out, but we were in the position where either we make it work now or it doesn't happen. Uh, the business is going to close or, or we make the uh, debts that we had go away. And so... We talked about it, uh, saying that we needed a silver bullet, and that's really the, the the conversations that we had within the company. And we decided that that silver bullet could be real estate development, and that it was worth the risk because we were already in such a, a risky scenario, holding on with so much debt. 
that we might as well uh, give it a go. And that we kind of needed to wipe just about all of our debts out with uh, one or two projects. Uh, and uh, that the, sh the short version is that's pretty much what we did. And we can talk today about sort of how that happened and what the process was. Uh, but in doing it, we realized a lot of things about the way in which our business model worked, um, which was the conjunction between architecture, construction, and real estate development. So uh, I'm sure a lot of people out there are looking at it from the architect as developer perspective. And I would say that the model that we operate on is, is fairly different from that model in that okay. we're not just architect as developer, we're architect as builder as developer. And there's an important piece there because there's, there's a very important role played by the builder in the middle of this. Um, and, and truthfully, that's where most of the revenue that exists within real estate development uh, and, in, and in architecture uh, is really all filtering through the builder. And so the greatest amount of revenue has, the, has a great potential for return and also a great potential for risk even just on the contracting side. And so, you know, the architect in a million-dollar deal isn't making a million dollars or they're not even having a million dollars of revenue running through. They're getting, you know, uh, some percentage of that coming through. So uh, the architecture piece of it can feed the others. And the, um, and the truth is that even through the development arm, maybe the, depending on how you set up your the structure of the business, maybe it feeds through the development arm. But one thing that we know for sure is that it's going to feed through the, the construction arm. And so I did just want to call out the, the difference between uh, an architect builder developer and an architect developer. Um, What's, so that what you did, what you just described is the architect as builder developer, just so we can compare what's, what's the other one, the architect as developer model, so we can compare the two. And so the architect as developer model would be, uh, in many cases, the way that it works yeah. is they're really functioning as a developer and they minimize or, uh, or just expense the fee of architecture internally. So it becomes an overhead cost to the development in many cases. Uh, and maybe you design it, uh, you're, just, you're just designing it yourself, depending on the size of the company. Maybe it is just one person or it's your, your team. And so it could just be your time, but what you're relying on is the profits from development to pay yourself back on the architecture side, not that necessarily it's a fee based for the architect. Right. So you get it, you get some sort of funding, you do your architecture piece of it, uh, you have this building built, you sell it or rent it, you get compensated for your architectural services and some sort of additional payback either through rent or through the sale. Right. And the reason that's so different is you can't pay the entire entire cost of construction through the profits on development. So, whereas you can potentially pay the entire cost of the architectural fees on the profits from development. And so that's where there's a major difference is one, there's, there's dollars that have to come in from financing or uh, whether that's through a bank or investor or your own funds that have to come in up front to pay the contractor and the builder through the process. Whereas the architecture, architecture fee, depending on the size of the project, doesn't necessarily even have to come in up front at all. You could, you could hold that to the end and just have it based on the profits. And so that's, that is a fairly different part of the process. Um, it's not that construction doesn't happen. It's just that maybe the contractor themselves, if you're subcontracting it out, has to figure out where the upfront financing comes from or um, how they're going to do the cash flow of the project. And 
there's pluses and minuses to both, and I suppose we can talk about uh, the benefits of either today. Yeah. yeah. What 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 I think would be really useful is maybe walk us through one of your projects. Yeah. Sort of use one of your projects as an example and sort of go from the very origin of it and walk us through the steps of how you got it built and either sold or rented or however you, you do the back end of it. Right. So the, the true structure of the way that our business is set up is there's uh, really two different businesses. There's the design-build business, which is one legal entity, and then there's a development LLC that gets created for each project. So uh, that's just sort of to get that up front. So when I talk about the different entities throughout this process, that's that's what. So every going project on you do is a separate company. So if you, you've done ten projects, you've done ten companies. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay. And they're all different legal entities. They pay taxes separately. Um, and there's many reasons we do it. Uh, oh, one of the major ones is uh, just liability. If it's a separate business, if that project completely fails, it doesn't mean that our design and construction business has to go under. Uh, that entity itself could go under. Uh, another major reason for us doing that is, uh, as you would have heard in the other episode that we did, we're an employee on cooperative. And so we don't want it to be the case that everybody in the cooperative has to be on board for us to do a development. And so the development portion of it can be uh, owned by and have partners that are some of the owners, but not all of them. And it gives us the opening to bring in people who are not within the co-op, either within the company or outside the company to be partial owners in the projects. Right. So, uh, so just to clarify that in case they didn't hear yeah. the first episode, place Taylor is owned by all of the employees. Um, and so the details of that, you should listen to episode one thirty. Um, but the re- one of the reasons that you make each project its own entity is so the members of Place Taylor could choose to be part of it or not. Right, exactly. That's one of the reasons why to make it, yep. but also liability. It's that's a very common, it, it is uh, common approach to make each project its own entity, so you can reduce risk all over the place. Right. So uh, back to the question you asked yeah. of sort of step by step through the process. Uh, the first caveat is that. It's never the same twice, uh, but but this is sort of a generalization of, of how it goes. Um, generally, the first step literally is uh, myself and uh, my business partner, uh, Evan Smith, who generally he and I are in on every development deal we do. Uh, and it's sort of he and I will propose it to the team and we'll find the rest of the partners and the financing to bring together. So he and I will... Uh, bike around or get in a car or just walk around a neighborhood and literally just see what is this neighborhood about? Uh, Where is the land that's available? What are the houses that are here? And we're not just looking for what's on the market and what does Zillow say? It's, it's really looking where's, where is there an opportunity? Is there an empty piece of land here? And, and so we will just create a list. We we're going around a neighborhood and we say, all right, there's this address here. There's this address here. And then we come back to the office and, and we do a little research. Uh, we go, we look at the zoning. We look at who owns it. Is there tax liens on it? Or have this person, does it own it because it's a, in the family trust or are they a developer holding on to it? And depending on the answers to all those, there's uh, more or less likelihood that we're going to be able to get it from them. There's complexities that we, we may or may not want to deal with. Um, we don't want to displace anybody, and so we're not buying houses that are currently being rented or lived in uh, by somebody who hasn't already decided that they're leaving. And so 
that's just the line in the sand we set on the social sort of justice side of things. Yeah. And so uh, those are properties we'll go after if that's what we find. And, and what type of projects do you typically do? Is it single family, multifamily, commercial? We've we've done we don't do commercial as of now though we'd love to. Um, it's a very different model business model which we could talk about it a, a little later um, than what we have been doing. We've been doing residential condo based development, so uh, it's the shortest term uh, return on real estate development, and which uh, when we get through the end to the end of this process, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about. Okay. Um, but residential, and usually lately it's been s- small multifamily. So anything from you know a two unit, which we're wrapping up one right now, up to a five or six unit, and even you know we're setting our scopes on higher developments right now. We're in the midst of working on one that's around thirty three units, and so we don't we're not constraining ourselves based off of the scale necessarily, uh, though. Because of the market we're in within Boston, we understand that we're sort of fitting into a, a small to mid-scale um, gap that we see in the market in some of the neighborhoods in Boston, uh, which is if you go too much bigger, you're competing against the big boys, and there's no way we're going to be able to do it. That's, just, a, that's an important tip, yeah. is that, is that if, you, if you go too big, then you're dealing with big yeah, monster developers. Yeah, and they've will, got so much money that they'll... There's no way you you could go up against them, and they've got so much staff, and so you know just everything about it where we wouldn't be able to compete. So with. you're flying just below the radar, as high as you can get without right. being noticed. And in Boston, also the other piece of it is uh, it's a it's a union city. So if you go too big now, now I can't do the contracting side of it. I've got to sub that out too. Okay. So there there is a and every city's going to have a different line of where where the scale makes most sense, um, and we think we can. Um, get up to a, you know, the, the sweet spot for us, I think what we're hoping to get up to is around a 10 unit development. But what you realize then is there's not a lot of land left in the city of Boston to go new construction doing that scale. And you don't usually buy a 10 unit building all at once in Boston without, you know, a good chunk of change. So where we've, we've landed is this, you know, three to five unit is where a lot of our project, I think we have six projects coming up in the next, uh, year and a half that are all in that, that size, the, the three to five or six units. Okay. So you identify the property and yep. say, okay, this is, this is a good idea here. We've done the research and, and this is a good piece of property. What's- yeah. So this is a good piece of property and that's just on the, this is the, this is a neighborhood. We think we could sell something here. And then it, it comes into the, the financial analysis side, which is, uh, sure it's a good piece of property, but is it a good financially, uh, is the decision a good one, uh, based in a financial model? And so we we have uh, a performa that we've created, which is really just a tool that can track you know, profits and losses in the development side of things. And in our business, this is just the way we work, both on the on the architecture, construction, and real estate development. We we've created a lot of spreadsheet tools, and those tools allow us to do a really quick analysis of things, and then we have versions that allow us to do more detailed analysis. And so the first thing is throw it into the quick analysis, which is, you know, a handful of inputs. What's the size of the land? Where is it located? What's the, what do we think we could sell it for based off of comps that we've seen? And what's the number look like at the end? And if that quick analysis says that it looks like it could be a decent project, uh, that's sort of where we stop at that phase and we realize that we want to go after this. 
And depending on what, where that land was, if it's something listed uh, on the multiple listing server, MLS, or you know, any of the other services that are now available to find real estate, we know we need to move really fast because nothing stays on the market that long if it's a good deal. And so the scale that all of this is happening, it could happen really within hours. Everything I've described so far could be within hours. Um, so we see the property, we come back to the office, we find it's a good deal, we do the financial analysis, and now we're, we're, we're either responding to the sale or we're finding our investors by the end of the day. Um, and so an understanding and a knowledge base is important to build, which is whether this is a good idea or not needs to be determined quickly, especially if something's listed on the market because we're going to need to put an offer in and uh, we're going to need to know how high we can go and how low we should start and that's going to be based off of this financial analysis that we've done. And even if it's not on the market, we still want to move fairly quickly because we're not the only ones that know that you walk around the neighborhood and look for land and put in offers, right? right, right. <laughs> um, so then we put an offer in and there's a whole you know, sort of standard negotiating process, whether we're getting it or not. If we're up against someone else, then it's really a, a crapshoot because you don't know what everyone else is offering and uh, you what we find is really important is we need to pick your need to pick your high point we're not going any higher than this don't get attached to it emotionally because you will you will follow that emotion beyond the financial the reasonable financial um, stopping point unless you've really just drawn the line in the in the spreadsheet if you will that says this is where you're stopping so when you're thinking money and you're talking money put your put your creativity away mm-hmm. <laughs> put put your architect hat off to the side for a little while because we're all dreamers right and stay focused on the money and the profit and 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 if it doesn't work you have to walk away from it and it could be the case that the creativity is what allows you to unlock the land that makes it into a good decision right right Right? and so there is creativity involved in putting the numbers into that spreadsheet and that could be your better analysis of the zoning your analysis of where the the city has play, your understanding of the neighborhood and knowing the players there and that they want greater density or that they want less density and that you might be able to get the variance or you might not. And so there is creativity and a knowledge base that is helpful in that process. My point is, do that creativity, draw your own line in the sand, which is still a risky endeavor. So if you're going for something that isn't just allowable by the city, if it's anything other than that, there's a risk involved. Um, and then draw that line and say, I'm not going, then you put the creativity away. It's, does right. it meet this number or is it not? If right. it doesn't, we're done, we move on to the next one. Right. I mean, the, the creativity that architects have actually is one of the advantages we have in this world. It's huge. Is that we can upfront, before we make these decisions, we see what the potential could be for this property that maybe a regular developer couldn't do or a builder couldn't do or just an investor couldn't do. We have these skills and this an additional talent uh, of being able to dream and to see things that others can't and to quickly make those decisions, go through those analyses, zoning analyses, uh, financial analyses right. to see if they all align. Right. Um, so, and, and the hard part about it in the development side is you can't get caught up in the creativity up front because it's got to happen so fast. Yeah. Right. Every single time you have, I have a piece of property, I want to jump into the sketchbook and start drawing the building, and I want to start figuring out how it's going to look with the rest of the context in the neighborhood and all that fun stuff. But I don't think about it design-wise at all. How many square feet can I fit? It's like, 
can I fit it here? What's the zoning and out? So like really just the practical side of the creative endeavor of, of the, the architectural process. And we can get to the other stuff later. And that's the real fun of the architect as developer model is you can get to that stuff later. And it's up to you to how much time you want to put into it once you have the land and once you've got the financing up, uh, set up. Right. Um, so let's just say everything goes great and we, we get the property um, and uh, or we get our offer accepted rather. Um, there's, a ri- there's a risk in even putting an offer in because at this point you'll have noted that I haven't said where the money's coming from. Yeah, right? that was going to be my next question because <laughs> right? I know everybody listening right. is thinking the same thing. And the truth is, this is actually how we do the process. We don't know where the money's coming from when we put an offer in. Um, sometimes we might, but it, we very often will put an offer in before we know where it's coming from. And what that means is whatever deposit you're putting down is at risk. So you're, you're putting a few grand in or, or more than that, potentially, you could lose all of that money if you can't figure out how to put your financing in place in time. Um, and so you could put in your offer form good terms for yourself that say, uh, yeah, I don't need to figure that out for, you know, a month or two months, but your offer could be denied just because you want to wait that long. Um, and if you've got the cash, great. You don't need to worry about this, but I'm going to guess that most of us out there don't just have all of the money to do the development on our own, right? So so our offer's accepted, which, you know, is a, a fairly rare thing. And one of the biggest skill sets that I like to say um, related to doing real estate development is just to not, and I've already mentioned it briefly, is to not get emotionally attached to it. It's, if you, you're going to lose most of the things that you go after, 90% or more of the offers you go for, the analysis you do, the numbers you calculate, the things you get excited about, the land you find, you're going to put an offer in and it's already going to have been sold a month ago and no one just updated an MLS or, (laughs) um, or someone's, putting in twice as much money as you're willing to put in there uh, because they just want the property. And um, and it's a homeowner and they don't care about it as an investment. They want the land because they think it's beautiful. Whatever the reason is, you're going to lose a lot of these opportunities uh, and there's no point in fighting for it. And that's why you have to draw the line in the sand. Um, and so it's not so often that you get the great feeling that this is actually going to work out and... Um, and that's the, I'm speaking again for all out there. This is the Boston perspective, which yep. is a very competitive market. Um, there's you know thousands and thousands of people doing the exact same thing that I'm doing every day, all day long, and I get to do it a couple of days a month for a half a day, right? So like I'm not necessarily uh, uh, in the best position, but that's where the creativity comes in um, is figuring out how how can I find something that someone else didn't find. Um, and uh, I, I think that actually is probably very different in many different places around the country where there is real estate sitting and, you know, there's still places in Detroit where you can be just go pay a dollar for a piece of land and, and maybe if you're creative about it, make a decent deal off, out of it. So it's, it's very market dependent, even in Boston, just depending on where you build in Boston, it's a very different uh, yeah. situation. So keep keep that in mind for sure. But so we've got the land uh, offer accepted, and now what do you do? So we've had uh, endless numbers of ways in which we've gone about getting the financing. Uh, the way in which we, we started on the first one was effectively a crowdfunding deal. Uh, and this was before 
crowdfunding as a true platform, um, one was legal, and two was so easy, uh, st- structured so well on an online platform. So, for those of you who are interested, you can start to do research about the Jobs Act, uh, which uh, is uh, uh, coming from the SEC, which is starting to allow different types of investment to happen in. Uh, not just in real estate, but sort of across investment um, industries. And how it affects real estate is now there's a, uh, you don't need to be an accredited accredited investor to invest in real estate developments. And so there's platforms online. If if you want to do research, um, you can find some where you can put up a piece of land and say, hey, I'm looking for investment in this, that, or the other thing and try to get investors to back you. Um, so that's the modern version of it. We've done it in the past where we, uh, we've, we've not done the friends and family thing so much, which is a, a fairly common way of doing this. You know, you, you can crowdsource amongst your aunts and uncles and your parents and your cousins and your best friends and scrap together the change. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you're really clear about your boundaries and contracts and deal with those things as legal documents, not as offers and sort of friendly favors. It's, this is business and treat it like business. That's my opinion on those. Yeah, I agree. Um, but what we, we did is we, we found, we, we used the value that we had in Place Taylor as an architecture and construction company and the brand that we had developed and the goodwill that was in our business, and we went out and we pitched it to people who we knew cared about our business. We said, we're doing something new here. We want to be able to push the boundaries of high-performance buildings, and we want to test it in the real estate development world, which as far as we knew at the time, which is this was a number of years ago, no one had done a speculative passive house project in the country. And so for us, it was, what's your pitch? What's your story really going to be? And if you go to someone saying, well, I don't really know what I'm doing and this is risky, but you know, if you could just help me out, you'd have to be dumb or your mother to, <laughs> to, to say yes to that, right? right. And so there's, there's a piece of this process which is just being confident about your own business and being confident about something that uh, is going to be risky, but it, you have to honestly believe it's a good idea. You, you shouldn't get someone involved into this. I, doesn't matter who it is if you don't honestly believe yourself that you you know how you're going to carry it out. And so we did that. We went and pitched it to enough people and you know, got plenty of no's and we got some lots of maybes that turned into no's and then we got a few yeses enough to get our first piece of a small piece of land. Um and the land's the first step because or or it doesn't have to be a piece of land. It could be a building you're renovating or or whatever. It's the property itself, in whatever condition it is, is is a, is the f- huge first step, and it's important to think about uh, both the land and then the cost it's going to take to renovate the property because both matter. But if you feel confident you're going to be able to get the capital to do the entire project somehow, um, then the first step is to just try to get the land secured because until you've actually bought it and it's in your name, there's plenty of ways for the seller. To wiggle their way out and sell it to someone for more, it's just that's just the way that that real estate works. Is, uh, is there's there's a lot of ways where the deal's going to fall apart even after your offer is accepted, and so getting it in your name as quick as possible is important. And then you've got the 
the flexibility of time on your side, which is sort of a big sigh of relief. And so it could be really where uh, you go from having seen a piece of land to getting an offer accepted to needing your financing in place in the matter of, you know, 48 hours. So this is a really fast, it's all of your other work has to be able to be put aside. Uh, if this is a sort of a sole proprietorship architecture company going on here, because you've got to be working on this. You know, your, your whole whole mind itself is focused on this. There's no meetings. There's no distractions. It's you're you're doing your numbers. You're focusing on the on the development side. And your and your pro forma that the, and the, yeah. those other tools that you're using takes all that into account, right? So it says, you know, if it is a renovated building, you talk, you go through the idea of approximately how much it's going to cost to purchase it, how much is it going to cost to renovate it, because you need to have all that funding right. when you start pitching it for for financing. Um, and something very interesting that you said is that you, you you have to go in there confident and you have to know what you're talking about. You need to essentially market this just like you're marketing your business or marketing your services to your clients. You need to market this deal to these potential investors. So you have to create that story. What's that story for this project? You know, <laughs> why why am I qualified to do this as an architect? You know, why why am I coming to you? You know what's the benefit to the investor uh, on the on the other end? You need to right. craft that story and be very good at telling that story. Right. So when you get there, you're you you have a story to tell, <laughs> right. and you can be confident telling it. Let's take a quick break here to say thank you to FreshBooks for their support as a platform sponsor of Entree Architect. Because as a platform sponsor, FreshBooks has provided funding and support. For our overall mission here at Entree Architect, they recognize the need for small firms like us to build better businesses in order to be better architects. FreshBooks is the easy-to-use accounting software designed to help us small firm owners get organized, save time, and get paid faster. It takes care of invoicing, expense tracking, estimating, reporting, and it all happens out on the cloud so you have access to your information from anywhere that you have access to the internet. And I use FreshBooks for my own small firm, Fivecat Studio, and my favorite feature of the FreshBooks software is sending my invoices by email and allowing my clients to pay by credit card. When FreshBooks says that you'll get paid faster, they're not kidding. With the convenience of clicking a button and paying by credit card, many of my clients pay now as soon as they receive their invoice. And for those clients who don't pay right away, FreshBooks automatically sends them a reminder of the balance due at an interval that I set. So once I send an invoice, I can go back to being an architect, and I don't need to chase down any of my clients. And Tim Lee of FreshBooks will show you how easy it is to send invoices by email on our exclusive video series Tim and I produced exclusively for the Entree Architect community. Check out this free video series at entrearchitect.com slash freshbooksvideo. There's no catch. There's no email. It's completely free. Just go to entrearchitect.com slash freshbooksvideo and you will get the videos right away. There's three of them. Shows you everything you need to know about getting started. And then go to freshbooks.com slash architect, freshbooks.com slash architect and sign up for your free 30-day trial and give it a try. It's free. I suggest you just send one invoice and see what happens. That's how I got started. Just send one invoice to one client and see how it works. And when I did that and I got paid much faster than usual, I signed up for the rest of it and I set up my whole my whole account in FreshBooks. FreshBooks.com slash architect for your free 30-day trial. 
And be sure to enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. For us, it was the case on the first few projects where every single deal we did with independent um, investors was different. The terms were different, the rates were different, the lengths of time were different, uh, the legal documents were different. And so it's not like you just have one form and you're done. I literally was customizing a legal document per pitch. It's who is this person, where are they coming from, what can I sell to them, and and have honestly be a good deal for both parties. And and. I've, this is not often maybe the way that development is done, but I feel very strongly that it's, it, I want to feel good about giving them the interest that they deserve. You know, they are helping us as much as we're helping them make money on their money. And this is a business endeavor for them and it's a business endeavor, endeavor for us. It's not that they're just donating money to you. That's, that's not the ask that you're going for. Um, and so, uh, Treat it business, like a business negotiation. They might want better terms and you could hold your ground or you could give it to them. And so uh, it is a big part of it is, is that ask. And, and say you're doing a project that costs $2.2 million. You're not looking to get from small investors $2.2 million. You could. Uh, and uh, that would be one way to go about it. And we've done that. We're actually we're in the midst of a project that's I don't know a million and a half or two million dollars uh, total total project cost, and we have enough investors built up now. We did do it in cash. We didn't even go to a bank at all. Uh, we have we had enough people and we got enough good terms. Uh, we brought some of our own capital now that we've been doing this for a little while, and um, we're able to av- avoid going to a bank. That's not generally the best way of going about it because banks lend at such low interest rates that it's really unlikely you're going to get an at-risk investor to come in and beat out a bank who's coming in at a 5% interest rate. Right. So those first projects, you're doing both private investment and banks. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into that, who are the types of people that you went to? Because you said you didn't talk to grandma, you didn't talk yeah. to mom, <laughs> you didn't talk to your uncle Joe. You went to somebody else. So who are those people? What types of people are you talking about? No, it was it was a strange list, and I and I don't know if most businesses have this list of people or not. But you know, it, it was. I guess I would have to describe them as place tailor groupies. Um, you know, it was people who really were just excited in the work that we were doing. Um, You're raving fans. Yeah, and it wasn't. Yeah. It was people who found out about us. Uh, you know, read a news article about us and reached out. It was uh, people I met at conferences who were sort of. Uh, bamboozled by the the way in which we did business, and uh, so it was. You know, a, a lot of those were strange emails. It's the, hey, do you want to meet up for coffee? I know we only talked once two years ago, but you know, you seemed interested in what we're doing, and this is the next phase of Place Taylor. Uh, wondering if you're involved, want to get involved. Yeah. Um, now, what I have uh, now that we've done it a, a number of times. I have a really simple thing on, my, on the bottom of our website at placetailor.com. At the you you scroll to the bottom and there's a whole there's a checklist, and you can all you have to do is put your name in your email, and you check a box. And it's they say things like I want to work at Placetailor or I want you to help me do a design build project or I want to what are the investment opportunities and I that box gets checked fairly regularly and I follow up right away just saying hey this is either what's available now or thanks for reaching out. When we have the next thing come up, I'll shoot you an email. What a great tip. Yep. And so 
now you've prepped them that the next thing comes. And, and I, I do have a sort of a script of um, the way in which that process will go. And, and I'll try to, if, if my schedule allows, meet with them, even if we don't have anything to pitch at the time. Because what I need to describe is that it's just as fast as we need to move on our end. Really, the harder part is those people moving on their end. Because that investment that I said takes 48 hours, uh, that deal from finding the land to needing to close an offer, could really mean that these investors who potentially, if you're not using an accredited investor, don't do this every day. Right? This is money that they've saved up and they maybe have invested somewhere else. And you need to explain to them that I might need that money as fast as you know, 48 hours to two weeks from now. And are, Is it realistic that from the day I give you a phone call and send you my draft of uh, all of my collateral materials and, we make, and I make the pitch that we were talking about, is it even feasible for you to get the money to us? And, and the answer could be no. And at which point, that goes in your spreadsheet of, all right, I know that Joe Smith can get me money, but it's going to take him two months to get it out of his investment account and, and, and into our account, which could be fine. That could be money that comes in at the closing, but it's not money that's going to go in for your purchase and sale agreement, right? So there's different phases in the sale process, and it could be, all right, I need to, clo- I need to have the capital myself to put in for the deposit, because that's going in before I've even talked to anyone. I need to come in with at least half of the, the, the actual money that's coming out the purchase and sale of the land, because that's sort of middle of the process. And I know I've got you know, Jill over here who can bring me money quickly if, if an investor's interested. And then I know I've got that uh, Joe Smith over there who really wants to invest and is going to do it just about any project we offer, but it's going to take him a long time to get the money. And so you're building your your team as you go and everyone's money is going to act differently. Um, and so that's what we did. We, we found enough of those people. We reached out and had enough successful conversations where we got these, um, these deals where we had, uh, got enough capital together. So, so it was the result of, of networking and building relationships with a lot of people, influential yeah. people and, and people who may be interested in that, this kind of thing. So that's the first piece is, is networking right. before the deal. So, you know, you know these people and you've built these relationships yeah. so you can have these conversations. The other piece is really important and we talk about it all the time here at Entree Architect is your brand. You yeah. leveraged your brand. You built the brand yeah. first and that was the first thing you said is mm-hmm. that the Place Taylor Groupies. That's based on your brand. Yeah. You spent a lot of time and effort building a strong, powerful brand on which you then leveraged these relationships. Yeah. Um, so when people hear me screaming at architects saying, build your brand, build your brand, there's another reason why you need to build your brand. Oh, yeah. There, there's no, I could say very confidently, those early projects, there's no way I, anyone would have invested in us without that story. No, there's just no way. They, were, they had no reason to. Honestly, it was uh, the the financial side of it. You know, the numbers looked okay, but they need to trust that the numbers I was giving them are even real. And so there's a level of trust and an excitement about what this could be that gets someone committed to even following through on the conversation. Um, and then you get it. It becomes a little easier because uh, you've got history behind you, which can say, "Well, the last one did well," and you know, don't you want to be involved in that? Um, so, and the more uh, you do, the easier it gets. Right. Exactly. Right. So you have. So let's say you have a million dollar project, and you got, all, you've tapped out all of your private investors. You still need more. So now you're going to hit the bank. So, so now you go to the bank. Yeah. What What happens there? How do you do that? 
So it depends on the bank you're working with of what, what you'll actually need and what your terms are. And that's another one you could, you could try to do up front. And depending on the kind of banks you work with is just figure out, just go to them. What, what kind of deals do you do? You know, is this just an informational call? I don't have a project right now, but I'm interested in doing this. Like, what's it really going to cost me? You could find some of this stuff just online by do, excuse me, doing just research. But you could go to a bank and find a real bank that could be your partner. And uh, then what we did is generally we, we, we find there's some number around 20% that we're going to need of equity up front, which means uh, the value of the land, which now we've paid for outright because we've gotten all these investors in, um, plus the value of the time that we put into the project, uh, which is another one f- for us architects out there. We can show the bank the value of the time we put in designing something without necessarily having paid ourselves. So uh, we could say this is a $30,000 worth of architectural value that we have here. And now that's equity that we're levering, leveraging against in the, the actual bank negotiations. So it's value of the land plus the value of the design uh, plus the, the value of, I mean, depending on how far you've gotten actually having a permit in place or um, anything else that you've done before you've gone to the bank, you can start to count towards the equity that you have into the project. And then a banks will, depending on the type of, pro- type of project, they'll do a loan to value of you know, of that twenty to eighty or thirty to seventy percent. And so all you got to do is bring that twenty, and you know they could potentially lend the other uh, seventy. However, it's not necessarily that easy because what they're going to do is they're going to look at how risky is this. And in the same way in which you made the pitch to your investors, you're making a pitch to the banker, which is no, I know this is a good idea because X, Y, and Z. What they're not going to care about nearly as much is uh, that brand of your business. Um, and the way I like to describe this is it's illegal for them to care about that. The bank has to just look at the numbers. That's the way in which the Federal Reserve told, tells them that they have to do analysis for their financing. And almost every bank, even if they give you a mortgage or mortgage lending, is then selling that mortgage to somebody else. And so they have to follow the rules of it meets this risk portfolio, it matches this appraisal process, and all of those things are just sort of calculated checkboxes on a spreadsheet. And so it's really helpful, I think, to build the relationship with the banker because they are going to either look at that in a favorable or a non-favorable way. And like, if they don't want you to do a deal with you, they're not going to even get to that point. If they want to do a deal with you because they feel like what you're doing is a good idea or you're a good guy or a good gal and you want to move forward with it with you as an individual, they're more likely to try to figure out a way to get it to work. But it is the case that it's just a numbers game. And so there's that's this is one that keeps me in check is you're not fooling anybody by saying that this is going to make a 2% return and you're okay with that because the project's not going to happen. You have to show a certain percentage of return or a bank's never going to lend to you. So the only way to do a 2% return project where there's such a likelihood you're going to lose money is to bring all the capital to yourself and take that risk on your own. I wouldn't do it if there was investors because investors not going to want to do it. It really has to be your own cash. What's a typical percentage of return that a bank's looking for? Uh, it really depends on on how you're doing it. But if, if you're doing the condo-based sales at the end, like we're doing in the residential market, often they're looking for around a 15% return. Now that's complicated because it's, 
50% of what. It's, yeah. You know, um, and unless we were looking at a spreadsheet together, we're never going to get to the bottom of what's really included in that. Um, yeah. I just but, wanted a comparison. Yeah. You said two is not going to yeah, work. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that's, you know, there's a spectrum there. And that might feel like a, a big uh, return on your costs. So, um, no, and again, that's that would be 15 or 2% on your costs of the project. It could be the case, and we have done this before, where you have a deal you've put $0 of cash into. You, it's all done with investors. So um, that, two per, that 2 to 15% might look great to you because you put $100 into it, and you're going to make $1,000 back. Right? That's a, that's a uh, multiplier of tenfold of the $1,000 that you've put in. Right? That is a really great deal in terms of investment, but a bank's not going to lend to you. So uh, just because it looks good to you doesn't mean right. that the, the bank on the other end is going to be okay giving you the money that you really need to. And by building that relationship with the banker, those are, that's information that you'll have up front. You'll know what they're expecting. Right. Uh, so if it goes well, the, the bank will do its appraisal and... Um, They'll do two appraisals, really. There's one of the existing property. What's the value there? So they have the understanding of the equity up front. And then they'll do appraisal of uh, what they project the value is going to be of the development that you create. And this is where the creativity and the architecture fund comes back in because now you're doing drawings and you're showing them what, what the vision is. And you could charge this as a fee to the development and try to pay yourself, or you could, like I said earlier, do it at risk and pay yourself back with the... Um, the profits at the end of the project, and that would be the at-risk work too. Is if you don't make any money, you don't make any money on the architecture, um, and that that could be a your business model. That's a decision that needs to be made. Um, so, if all of that happens and the bank says okay, that's a good position to be in. The bank's also going to look at, in addition to just the numbers in the the pro forma and your design, they're going to look at your, your personal credit. Um, and this can be where a lot of us out there really get held up. Um, and and this, is, this, is our this is really our biggest challenge up front, is what's securing this project if something really goes wrong? Uh, you could make a deal with those investors that they're also going to be guarantors. And a guarantor is just someone that signs on. They don't necessarily have to have put capital in, but they say, if something goes wrong in this project, we're backing it up. And if you had the capital to be your own guarantor and co be confident that the banks are comfortable with that, then you're good to go sign on the dotted line and you're going to get a loan. If you're like many startup architecture firms where you've got really nothing in the bank, you might not even own your own house or your own car, which is my case, right? <laughs> you know, it's, you know, you, you live that lifestyle by choice or, or not. Yeah. And um, and you said in the beginning that you you know you were the owner of a firm that was in significant debt, right? So now the whole I'm point of this was to try to get out of debt, <laughs> exactly. and so now the banks are looking at that. Exactly. So you can't hide anything when you're going to the bank, and and so then now you're looking for another partner. It's who's willing to sign on to this for for some return on something to take on that risk to help back you up and do this project. And, and so now you're going back to one of your investors and trying to, or you're finding somebody else, or you know, right, so may, they may not put any money up. They may just be willing to sign, sign the on as a guarantor. So, and now we're talking about a whole another level of negotiations on a very different, in a very 
that's a much harder thing to understand the risk of a guarantee than it is a return on a, a, a percentage return on an investment. So if you're going to an investor, you could say, uh, all right, give me $100,000 and I'll pay you back at a rate of 10% uh, over 12 months. That's a pretty easy return. You can calculate it out. With a guarantor, there's no real knowing what the total risk of that project is because you don't know when the project might fail. So it could be the project's almost about to be completed and then everything goes to uh, shit and the, the banks come after you for the whole total cost of the project. Um, and now you're signed on as a guarantor. There's a lot of money out there at risk. Um, so it, it, it's a little bit um, more difficult. And often what ends up happening is the person who wants to sign on as a guarantor wants to be an equity partner. And this isn't always the case, but an equity partner means you're not giving them a percentage return on the amount of money they put in. You're giving them a certain percentage of the profits that you might make on this total project. So essentially they become an owner of the project with you. They, they could be. There's lots of different ways you can structure yeah, that legally, yeah. but effectively in terms of the way that profit distribution works, it would be within the same process that the owners are getting distribution, this guarantor could have distribution. Okay. Um, and... Uh, it's usually the case that actually they would get the money before the owners. So the owners are the last people who make get the money back. Yeah. So anyone who's an investor, they get it first. The people who are coming on as guarantors, they're going to get it somewhere in there. And then the owners are going to get it back there. Well, really the banks get it first. The banks get it before everybody. Then the first round investors and the second round investors and then the owners get their money back. And that's at the all end. decided in the legal documents when you get the loans and the investments. It all explains that and exactly. who gets their money first. Which is why you need to understand the whole process before you go pitching it to your investors because you can't commit to them that they're going to have what's called the first position on the mortgage because they're not. Yeah. The, there's no bank in America will lend to you without being in the first position. They just they, they can't. It's yeah. against the law. So, <laughs> um, so it needs to be in the terms that they um, will get pushed back to second position when the bank gets right. in there or third or fourth or fifth or whatever it is. Um, so now you've found your piece of land, you've gotten your investors, you pitched it to the bank, the bank's interested, you've taken care of your credit because you've gotten your guarantor, and the, um, the bank actually lends you the money, and now the terms in terms of what they're, uh, the bank's lending to you, you have to think about how is the money actually being released, and at some point in this, the way in which you've gotten your performa completed is that you've talked to a contractor in many of your cases. or My case is simplifies it because I just do the estimating myself and I am the contractor or my team is. Um, and so we can tell them, no, these numbers are real because they're internal and this is what the cost will be, uh, which gives us a huge amount of flexibility because we can say we don't want to, we're not caring so much about making a huge profit on the construction side of this. Let's make those numbers look really good so that we can get the bank to give us this deal. And then we can cut a deal on the back end of the profits made on this project can shift back to the construction arm. And so we get a lot of flexibility because that huge number in a development project, which is the construction revenue, we have control over. And that's, the, that's right there is the crux of the difference between an architect developer and the architect builder developer is the control over that middle number, which by far is going to be the biggest number on your performa, is the construction costs we control. And it's not that it can go to zero. It's not like we're saying we're doing the project for free. We, but, and remember, we're actually legally different entities. So just because we're pushing money around, we're actually writing legal documents from one LLC to another, 
which I might be the partial owner of both of those, but there's an agreement that says, all right, we're going to push off the profits for the construction arm for X amount of dollars to the end, and we're going to have that be the first position in the waterfall, which means uh, the first position after all of the investors get paid back, the, f- the first of the owners or the equity shared members get their return back. In this instance, Placetailer, the design-build company, might be the first member to get that money back. Now, Placetailer might not have put any money in, but they've just, in exchange for allowing the contract to show that there's $100,000 or whatever pushed to the back, they get it released to them first, and maybe on that $100,000, there's a 10% return over the six months of construction. And so there's a benefit to both parties because it's acting like an an investment without Placetailer needing to put money in. And now Placetailer's made some money off of not bringing in the revenue that it typically would have. Um, And there's a benefit to the development arm because we can get a project performer to look far better than someone who doesn't have control over those numbers. Um, So there's there's a a 10% shift or whatever it needs to be on a construction budget, you know, that essentially goes to that bottom line. So that 2 to 15% number, I could make a, a 2% return look like a 12% return by doing this little maneuver. Right. It, that's a ten, and that's not exactly the case because there's other costs in there. But um, And you're still you, getting paid. You're just getting paid at a different time in the process. Right. And so it does mean, though, that the true profit on that development is still 2% which means that it's not that great of a development from the bank's perspective, but they're, it, it's not like you're lying to them. It, that money is now at risk, and that's part of why there should be interest for place tailors side of things. If it goes wrong, we don't make pro- the construction arm of the business doesn't make any money, doesn't make any profit. We make a revenue, we don't make profit if we're pushing all of our profits to the end. And so there is money that's being put at risk there, um, and so it's a legitimate way of doing it. Um, it's just that without having control over that, you can't play with those numbers. And the only reason this really matters for us is that we do want to do projects that maybe are, are pushing the boundaries of affordable housing with high-performance house, housing stock. And so we might want to spend more on a house, which is, is, doesn't make sense to a lot of developers that you wouldn't want to capitalize on the most profits possible. But for us, we do. This is why we want to do it. We want to build the best product for the cheapest amount and Profit is, is not the number one goal in some of our projects um, on just the development side. But because there's, there's all three of these different ways in which we can pull in profit from the architecture side, the construction side, the development, we get to decide which, which one of these entities does it make sense for us to bring in profit from on this project. Um, and it does shift. Sometimes we team up with a developer and we're the minority share equity partner on a development. Uh, which has, is happening on some projects now where we put the deal together, but we're not putting any money in. And uh, in exchange for doing all of the work, we get a 30% share of the project. And, and the investor we brought in is actually equity for 70% of it. So it could be our deal, but we have the minority share. In that instance, it's going to actually be more beneficial to us to make the profit on the construction side because we're going to make more throughout the year on profit on the construction. So this doesn't affect most probably listeners out there, but it's, it's the more detailed or nuanced, uh, reason why I pointed it out up front in this. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's important because it's, it's a big difference. It is. Yeah. And so, so let's, okay. So now we're funded 
and uh, what's what's the next step? And I and and I know this is getting long, but it's, but you know this funding part and the, these yeah. the beginning of what we just talked about is the piece that I think is missing from most of the discussions about yeah. architect as developer right. is how do you do this upfront? Right. The back end of it is probably pretty you know typical. Yeah, and, um, and that's partly why I spent the time there. Is yeah, because that's the question that everybody has. Yeah, it, it definitely is, and the truth is, from that point on. Uh, if you've worked in the field of architecture, you've done the rest of it already. You're, except you're just going to be your own owner's rep. And you're going to get money released from a bank, which is usually how projects go. Some banks releasing it. It's just now you're the one talking to the banker. Um, and and you you follow the construction schedule that's been agreed to by the contractor. You get the releases that are hopefully ahead of that schedule, which is part of what you're negotiating with the bank. Um, and... And now the money is just flowing through your development entity to pay the contractor and they build a project until it's done and then the project's done. And that's, that's something we don't need to spend that much time on because I'm going to just assume that everyone here has sort of had the experience of building a building. Right. So once you have yeah. the money, then you either, if you're a contractor yourself, you start building it right. or... If you have to hire a contractor, then you go through that process of hiring a contractor, which we all know how to do, um, build it. And then, and then once it's built, so you're talking about condos, um, let's say, let's say we go through that process, it gets built and it's finished. What is the process that you're doing on, on your projects or, or this condo project that you're talking about? So if you're doing condos, uh, you have typical, the typical process would be to list it. So you'd put it on the MLS and people would come look at it and try to buy it. And they would put offers in and you could uh, and hire. Are, are you selling the whole building or are you selling individual condo units? You know, we're in this part of the process, we are definitely more flexible. Um, uh, and depending on the scale of the building, we just show it. You want to buy the whole thing? We'll sell you the whole thing. You got to give us the right terms. You know, if, if you want to buy one unit, let's talk about that too. And so it's... It's really a let's compare the numbers and let's have those conversations. Um, we prefer not to use a realtor uh, if we can avoid it, uh, which we have done mostly. So, how are you marketing this project once it's finished? So, and this is again uh, back to that brand question. Uh, many of the projects that we've done, we've actually been able to pre sell. Um, so before we've actually even finished construction, some of our projects this coming year, before we've even started construction, we have people who want to live in a place tailor house. So I get those, those contacted from people throughout the year. Tell us, tell us, just like we have investors who say, tell us when the next investment is. I have people saying, tell us when you build your next development because we want to live in one of your houses. So you're building email lists. You have so an we're email, building email you lists. You have an email list for people who are interested in investing and you have an email list of people who want to buy. Right. And I would say that that's probably a very unique scenario that we have. And it's, it's, it is entirely based in the brand that we have. It's, yeah. But if, it's a, but if people, if architects build right. their, their brands, Absolutely. that's one of the benefits of building the brand is then you can start, you know, c- collecting these emails and you'll have these people who are interested in being part of your story. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's where we start. We contact those folks and say, Hey, we've got this property. Are you interested? And Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. 
often what it really results in is they might know somebody who wants it. You know, is they tell their friend who's also looking for a house, and that's a fairly common scenario, uh, especially when you're talking with first-time home buyers uh, who are you know having their first or second kid and looking to to get into a house. Their friends are also first-time home buyers with their first or second kid looking for a house, and so. And they're also probably all in the similar category who care about your brand. Because if they care about it, their friends care about it. And maybe their family cares about it. Because that's sort of how friends and family work, is right. you often have similar similarities. So um, don't think about them reaching out to some you know, poten- un- unlikely potential as that's the end of the line. Think about it as they might tell someone else about it. Um, the other way to go about it, which... Um, we are actually just about to test is um, instead of going through a realtor, at least in Massachusetts, and this is not the case in all states, uh, if you are a licensed uh, lawyer, you can list on the MLS um, an, an offering. And so we're working with our real estate attorney who works with us on the development side of things to check all these contracts that I've talked about uh, to uh, put up the listing on the MLS for us for a fixed fee instead of a percentage of return on the project. And then I'm doing all the marketing myself. And the truth is, as soon as it hits MLS, it can populate all of these online tools, which is really what people are doing anyways. Um, right. So it puts um, it on Zillow and all the other right. online real estate, realtor.com. Exactly. Yeah. And um, sorry to anybody who's a realtor out there, but the truth is that job has... Uh, lost some value with the the um, new tools that are available online. It's the, the job of a realtor used to be very difficult because you had to track down what was going on, and it's now just all public knowledge. It's really easy to get to, and so people can find that information with or without their realtors on the on the buyer side, and you can get it out there without a realtor too because these things populate the information, and so you just need to get it up there, which. The limitation there is you have to either be a licensed realtor or you have to be a lawyer, depending on your state. And so we can get it listed based off of it. You could you could list as for sale by own by owner, which is possible. Um, that's not what we've chosen to do so far. Um, and the reason that I like to do the sales is is right back to the the same brand question. You, you're really going to hire someone who who doesn't know your brand as well as you do to do that pitch. It's just never going to work out. Um, and until we get to the scale where that becomes really a full-time job, it really makes sense for me to do it. I can get so much more value out of making that sale because I do it all day long. It's, I'm just selling place tailor like I always do. And that's, that experience is so important for someone. When they show up to do that open house and they see your product, you are not just selling them the house, you're sell- at least for place tailor, you're selling them the opportunity to live in a place tailor home. And think about all, all, of, all of the the ways in which this will make your life better. Um, and that's why that I say I need to do the, the sales process myself. And I, I realized that because we were using realtors on our first projects and I did all of the work. I showed up to every open house, I made the sales, and the people who were interested were the ones that I was able to really give the story to. Um, and so that's where we've moved, is down that path to say we've got to do this ourselves however we can. Um, and ideally, we can do that before we even have to list anything and get the pre-sales. Um, and in some instances, like the one we're doing now, we, we don't want to do a pre-sale because we want to see what the market will bear. And we want to see, uh, okay, let's let's get the bidding war. Let's see what people will really pay for this um, project if it's out there. 
and a huge value, which is is one that works for all of architect developers out there, is think about all of the future potential clients that are coming through an open house. You want to meet every single person walking through that open house door because even if they don't buy that house, you want them to be a client of yours. That's it. Is how often do you get strangers walking in looking at something that's a a real live three dimensional portfolio piece? Never, right? Right. Right. And so use Perfect it. Perfect marketing opportunity. Absolutely. And we've got that's happened so many times. Well, this isn't the one for us, but oh, great. Well, yeah. I happen to be we, an architect. We just happen to have an architectural <laughs> services wing of what we do. Yeah. And so make that sale. And that's actually what's led to future developments for us, too, is, all right, well, that's our next pre-sale, and that's how you start the next project. All right, you give us a deposit. You need 20% down on your future unit. You've got to stick with us for 24 months here. It's going to take a while, but at the end of it, you're going to have a custom-designed project. You get three more of those, and you build a triple-decker, and now your investor pitch doesn't have to go anywhere because your investors are your future homeowners. And so now you can get creative about the way you're, you're doing um, yeah. this process. And we could, we could probably go on for another yeah. hour. <laughs> this is so much information. It's, and it's so, it's, I thank you so much for sharing what you're sharing here today. It's so much value. Um, we are up against the, uh, the clock here. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'd love to have you back again because sure. I want to know more about the branding part of it. Mm-hmm. because I know that you have a passion for your brand. Yeah. Um, much of what we talked about, the success of your architect as developer uh, business is built on that brand. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love to have you come back again if you're interested and talk about the brand. Um, sure. Whenever we talk about brands, that also, you know, it's a very popular episode. So um, I, love, I love hearing what you're having to say. So much value here today. It makes me want to go out and get started. <laughs> um, it is the future of Five Cat Studio, our firm. That's, that's yeah. where we're going as well. So um, it's so valuable to hear what you're saying and how, how to get started. Because that's, right. the, that's the piece that so many of us don't know. You know yeah, absolutely. We, we know how to build it. We know how to maybe even to sell it. Um, but to actually get the money to get started um, and to find those pieces that we're looking for. So, so valuable. So thank you very much for, for sharing that information. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, as, as you can tell, I can go on and on about this stuff. So <laughs> no, that's a good, that's a good yeah, thing. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, I'm, I wish we could do it for another hour. Um, but, uh, you know, eventually people turn it off. <laughs> they have to get back to work. You know, they got architecture to design. Right. So if you're interested, you can go to uh place That's like a, a fine custom suit tailor. It's T A I L O R placetailor.com also all throughout social media uh place taylor um declan before we wrap i'm I'm starting to i wanted to start with you actually i'm going to start asking one question at the end of each of our episodes and i'm going to to ask you here uh, what's the one thing that small firm architects can do today to build a better business for tomorrow i would i would say Stop doing whatever you're doing right now and, and take the time to think about your long-term plan. And, and don't let yourself be distracted by something else. It's, this is your time to, to really think about it. And don't just do the, the budget-based, oh, I want to make $500 million next year. It's what do you want out of your firm based off of the, uh, the day-to-day? What, are you, what is the work you want to be doing um, and... 
And I think that's really important across the board, but definitely as it relates to architect as developer, this is not the work for everyone. It's scary. It's risky. It could put you in a really bad position, and you need to understand the risks if you're going to go ahead with that. And it could be the case that it's really just more enjoyable to keep doing architecture. And sitting back and understanding that is important because the dollar at the end of the day is not the only story. Um, and and you're not going to you can get caught up in the financial side of it unless you take that time. So. Yeah, that's so such a great answer to that. Um, I, I think that's one of the biggest values of what you just said in this episode is is to show us that it's not that easy. You know, you imagine it, you know, that, you know you're an architect and sure, I can get some financing and I can go do it. But the process that you just laid out is very clear. But you can see that it's not easy. It's very complicated to get the financing, to get to get the bank to say yes, to, to make the whole deal work. That's the hard part, right? And and uh, you want to make sure that you really want to do that before <laughs> right. you before you try it. Absolutely. Um, and your answer to that question is is exactly my answer. Is yeah. is to plan your future. You need to know where you want to go in order to get there. Right. And so uh, thank you for that. And thank you. And thank you for your service to the profession today here. And I appreciate you for sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks, Mark. This is episode 134. I did misspeak at the very beginning of this show with the wrong episode number. Complete show notes and a direct link to download this episode will be found at entrearchitect.com slash episode 134. And you know, the first step toward building a better business, whether you provide architectural client-based services, architect as developer, or a hybrid like Declan at Placetailer, the first step is to build a better business that is profitable. And we can show you how to do that step-by-step with our digital course, Profit for Small Firm Architects. It's free and it's available to you at entrearchitect.com slash free course. Go over there right now and download your free course at entrearchitect.com slash free course. My name is Mark Arlepage, and I am an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to go build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. mentioned it to my family but in terms of telling people like oh yeah we're doing this i'm looking for projects you got anything yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me dreaming of launching your own architecture firm well, well buckle up for a wild ride with emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm where do we begin we don't even know what type of business to formalize as is it an llc is it an llp like how are taxes i mean the list is astronomical season one featured founders jeffrey lexi and chris owners of level studio architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio one evening 
stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. So for me, the the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.